Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover, and this podcast, you might know, is a spinoff of the TV show of the very same name, and you can find clips and full episodes of that show at truetv.com slash Everything and the True TV app, and I just have to remind you that starting on March 20th, we are coming back with six brand new animated episodes. It's a little mini-series we're doing called Adam Ruins Everything Presents Reanimated History. I, in my animated self, uh, bust into a boring, stuffy old historical documentary and tell you about how all of the stories you've heard throughout history are wrong or at least just, you know, didn't go exactly the way you thought they did. It's really cool. Those start March 20th every Tuesday at 10 on True TV. But let's talk about the podcast you're listening to right now. On this show, I talk to researchers, academics, journalists, scientists, and experts from all around the world of human knowledge about the work that they do and why it is so gosh darn mind-blowing. Today's guest is Dr. Azra Raza, who appeared on our television episode, Adam Ruins Science, when she told us about why the traditional mouse model of scientific testing, you know how scientists are always testing stuff on mice? Well, those results don't extrapolate to humans quite as well as we all like to think, especially when it comes to cancer research, which is Dr. Raza's specialty. Even though 90% of the DNA humans and mice share are the same, our bodies differ in huge ways that cause those results to not port as well as we would all hope they did, and that is extracting a real cost in wasted funding and in clinical trials that just don't go anywhere. But I'm not going to bend your ear about that. Dr. Raza is. She's a cancer researcher who works directly with human tissue to research the causes of cancer, and she says that is just one of the many ways that we can improve cancer research. She's a professor of medicine and the director of the MDS Center at the Columbia Medical School. I am so excited to have her join us from New York. Let's get to the interview. Well, Dr. Raza, thank you so much for coming on the show. Most welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Adam. <laughs> so you're the director of your professor of medicine and the director of the MDS Center. Can you tell us very generally what you do? Yes, so I am a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I see patients with um, acute myeloid leukemia, and a disease called pre-leukemia because uh, patients with that particular disease, also known as myelodysplastic syndromes or MDS, have a tendency to develop acute myeloid leukemia. So basically what I do is I treat both acute leukemia and pre-leukemias and uh, study them as well in my lab. So I am a translational researcher who sees 40 to 50 patients every week in clinic and then have a very, very busy basic research lab with uh, a number of scientists working on uh, molecular and genetic uh, characterization of both these stages of the disease. 
So you're not just uh, treating patients with the disease or studying the disease. You're doing both and, and getting both of those sides together. Yes, I am one of those handful of uh, translational researchers who, despite having a lab, have not given up seeing patients because for me at least and for many of my colleagues that I know, all our inspiration comes from the bedside. Right. And every question that we ask must come from the bedside and the answers must go back to the bedside. Uh, well, the reason you originally came on our uh, television show was to talk about uh, the deficiencies in uh, mouse model testing in uh, uh, cancer research. Um, and it, it does that come from your work with uh, human patients as well? Yes. So one of the things, Adam, is that I came to America in 1977. And at that time, we were treating acute myeloid leukemia with a combination of two drugs, which are popularly referred to as 7 and 3. That was in 1977. In 2018, I'm still treating acute leukemia with 7 and 3. Huh. And with the same dreadful results. And that is what makes me almost suicidal every morning. Oh, that no. 41 years have gone by, Adam. It's embarrassing that we are offering the same treatment to our patients. And so... I realize that one of the biggest reasons that I have been talking about all along is why is cancer research failing spectacularly to approve, to improve treatment is because the researchers who are studying a human disease they never see in animals who never get them. Hmm. They're, because they're, uh, you feel it's because they're only working with the animals and they are not working with humans directly? Well, one reason is that they are not MDs. People who are doing a lot of cancer research are not seeing the patients. Right. Whether they are MDs or PhDs, it doesn't matter. Once they are in the lab, that becomes their focus. So they become more and more removed from the actual disease. And two, they study it in animals who are not spontaneously getting. So, for example, you're studying breast cancer or lung cancer in the lab. It's not as if a mouse or a rabbit suddenly got lung cancer and you're studying that mouse or rabbit. That would be a spontaneous thing, that naturally the animal got a cancer. No, they take a healthy animal, inject cells into it, or try to create the appearance of cancer by damaging DNA or something like that very artificially in animals who are not supposed to have cancer. So that's the problem that researchers are studying diseases they never see in animals that never get them. This is the fundamental, one of the fundamental problems that I have become very upset about over the years. <laughs> right. I mean, it, I, I understand how you know, from that researcher's point of view, and look, this is not my field, so you know, I'm uh, my understanding of it is growing, uh, and I and I'm understand the limits of it, but I understand how, you know, uh, seeing cancer cells in a mouse might give you some understanding of how cancer works in an abstract sense, but it also, you know, is very intuitive to me that. Uh, there is so much, there must be so much that is specifically characteristic of a naturally occurring cancer in a human that you simply wouldn't see in a mouse, you know, that is bred to have cancer that you're, uh, you know, looking at. It's, it's such a different environment. 
completely. So that's the issue. You know that uh, at one time it was indeed a very good idea to study cancer in um, in animals. Um, but you know, before I talk about uh, about this mouse model business, Adam, I want to say a few words about what we are supposed to do for our patients. I mean, our goal is that we have to provide those with cancer from the time of diagnosis throughout the course of treatment kind of care which optimizes quality of life by anticipating, preventing, managing their suffering. Right. And my concern is that the current cancer paradigm is simply not accomplishing that. And why is that? One of the reasons is that the kind of treatment options that we are bringing to our patients are simply quite horrendous, frankly. Today, one in two men and one in three women will get cancer. Right, I've heard that. I want to talk for a minute about Andrew, for example. Let's just take this case. In July of 2016... He develops tingling sensation in his right arm. So you know how it is. You think, oh, maybe I slept in the wrong way. He starts to exercise a little more. But then weakness developed in his arm one weekend while he was in the countryside, and it became so much worse that he jumped into his car, drove four hours straight to the NYU emergency room, and within hours he was quadriplegic. So the neurosurgeons went in and they found um, an angry-looking glioblastoma multiforme, which is a form of brain tumor. But they could remove only 90% of it. So following this, they performed extensive surgeries, placed a shunt in his ventricles. Then this is followed by intensive rounds of aggressive chemotherapy, radiation therapy, immune therapy, more and more of the same. He suffered unbearable pain and toxicity from all of this. And the tumors continued to grow and seed into his brain from right to left, from front to back. The tumors kept growing. We failed Andrew. Andrew died on August 25th, 2017. He was 23 years old. To me, this is a crisis in oncology. Andrew also happened to be best friend of my daughter. Hmm. Growing up together. So why is this crisis there? Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a crisis, but it shakes you up when a 23-year-old is dying such a painful death. And every treatment we have given him has made his quality of life worse. So only a crisis leads to a paradigm shift. And existing paradigms, when they fail, they lead to searching for new ones. But that's the question I first wanted to address with you. In the background of real live cancer patients who are dying every day, at 23 years of age, that this is not just some talk about whether we should study mice or this lab or that. No, 
we really need to examine what is going on with a broader perspective, what we are doing to our patients. This is why I keep bringing you back, Adam, to the patients. That is the cancer paradigm that we are supposed to reduce the suffering of our patients. Are we really doing that or not? Right. That really puts it into perspective because it's, uh, you know, it's not a form of even just talking about how we research the science. It's not a uh, an abstract academic topic where we're just trying to, you know, figure out how gravity works. This is we're talking about people and people suffering. So, for example, a drug called I won't take the name, for example, a drug called T extends the life of a pancreatic cancer patient by 12 days. And it costs $26,000. This is a real drug. You're just this not is a it. real drug. Now, only today, Adam, only 3 to 5% cancer patients will ever enter a clinical trial. And 95% of the clinical trials we do fail. Yeah. Now, under intense pressure from the public and from advocacy groups, FDA has reduced its bar for approval of a drug to a bare 2.5 months. So if a drug can extend survival for a patient by 10 seconds more than 10 weeks, the drug will get approved and billions of dollars will be made. But what will it do to the patients? Right. Still, even with that background, Only one in five drugs approved between 2014 to 2016 improved survival by 2.5 months. And Mm. between 2002 and 2014, Adam, 72 new anti-cancer drugs were introduced. They prolonged survival by 2.1 months. Wow. Two-thirds of existing cancer drugs approved in the last two decades have shown zero improvement in survival. Really? Two-thirds have shown zero improvement? Zero improvement in survival. survival. And and costing the quality of life. On the other hand, my innocent patients, 40% of them believe that if a drug is FDA approved, it's got to be entirely safe. It should have no side effects. Yeah. So what is it? Is it hype or hope? Where are we going with this? Well, that's a very... That's a very dire picture. I mean, we've talked about on our television show on this podcast about, you know, the common, you know, misconception in medical treatment where we focus too much on eradicating the disease at the expense of the patient's quality of life and how that's a common problem in end of life care uh, where doctors will prescribe or patients will opt for these treatments that only extend their lives a little bit while making their quality of life uh, uh, much worse. But you also point out that while doing that, these, <laughs> these drugs don't seem to even be effective. We don't seem to have effective tools to even fight the disease. You summarized it beautifully. So, Adam, you know, one of the books that I read over and over, you'll be surprised what it is. It's Thomas Kuhn's uh, book about the paradigm shift. Ah, I I learned about this in college. I did not read the book, but I had to learn about the book. About Uh. (laughs) Please go back and read. It's one of the best things you'll ever read. I read it again and again. I basically summarize it in one sentence for you which is to make an old paradigm which is not working irrelevant, we basically have to show the relevance of the new one. Yeah. Because no one is going to give up what they do or what they are used to doing or what they are familiar with happily ever. We know that. 
Right. So the only way we are going to change anything in um, in treatment of patients with cancer will be to show what is going to work. Because my concern, Adam, is we keep doing what we are doing for two reasons. One is because that's all we know how to do. If we only learned how to study a molecular genetic technique in mice, that's all we'll do. Right. But the second reason is that we don't know what else to do. So my point is, and I'm so glad you're giving me this chance to talk to you because this is my personal appeal to all researchers. Human tissue may be precious and everyone doesn't have access to it. So it is incumbent upon the researchers who have access to human tissue to actually use it properly and to be able to show the relevance of studying that tissue and thereby making the other thing which is not working irrelevant. So now I'm happy to talk about why why this is happening and the first major reason why we are failing with bringing better therapies to the bedside is we test everything and we do everything for drug development in animal systems, in artificial systems, which do not easily apply to humans. And its background is that in back in 1800s, fancy mice were exported from Japan to Europe and to the US, and these commercial strains were started to be used for genetic research. And it's true there are similarities between mice and man, because 97% of human genes have homologs in the mouse genome. But the nucleotide sequences of mouse and human genomes are only 50% identical. In mm. fact, the dissimilarities, if you think about them, a life cycle of a mouse is sexual maturity at 6 to 8 weeks. Gestation is 19 to 20 days. Litter size is 5 to 8. And life expectancy is 3 years. Right. More important, we test drugs in mice, Adam, but metabolic rate of mice is seven times greater than that of humans. So the same drug being metabolized in mouse has little to do with how it will be metabolized in humans. Right. But let me let me ask you this, um, because, you know, in response to our segment, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, working scientists who are fans of our show. And so the segment we did on mouse models, I, I had some scientists come back and say, well, we understand the the differences between humans and mice. Those are taken into account in our studies. This is just the the first step. And, you know, any scientist who knows what they're doing knows that it, you know, not every, you know, thing you discover ports over. Uh, and so this is a problem that we understand and correct for. I mean, uh, how do you feel about that response? Well, I feel the same way what I've been saying all along. If we were correcting for those uh, things properly, then why are we having a 95% uh, failure rate in clinical trials? We need to question that we are not doing it correctly. I mean, I rest my case. If 5% clinical trials that succeed are failing to extend survival by even 2.1 months, then what exactly are we correcting for? Hmm. So my point is, okay, you have said everything, you've tried to do everything in more and more artificial. So let me, let me give you another example. How, we, how can we correct for this? So for example, we humans, when we look at our blood cells, 70% of our blood cells are cells called 
neutrophils and 30% are lymphocytes. If you look at mice, it's the exact opposite. Only 10% are neutrophils, 90% are lymphocytes. One of the reasons is mice live close to the ground. Their immune system evolved to defend them against earth-borne pathogens. Hmm. We do not live close to the ground. Our system has to fight airborne pathogens. So, when all this is taken into account, and even researchers themselves realize that taking a healthy mouse, putting in human cells into that uh, mouse, first by destroying its immune system, is not the best way. Then they went ahead and developed even more artificial things called immunocompromised mice, xenotransplantation, genetically engineered mice. Well, the problem with all this mouse-centric approach is that we are now going to ignore the organism's environment and developmental history playing any role in the development of cancer. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, this kind of thing can be extremely misleading. And this is what has led to a powerful inertia in the field. Because the past choices of researchers who are serving as mentors are also determining the present and future choices of the mentees. The people they are training, if you train them in just using a certain model to study, that's all they're going to do. Right. Secondly, the funding agencies. Think about all the grants that come from, let's say, National Cancer Institute. They're not going to fund anything unless we show it in mice. Why? Because the people who are determining who gets the grants are the people doing the mouse work. <laughs> right. So, I mean, honestly, you uh, you really can't argue with that. And then FDA requirements are that you can't bring a drug to human trials until you test it in mice. You know, I'll, I'll give you a quote from Dr. Richard Klausner, who was director of the National Cancer Institute, who said this, and I quote, The history of cancer research has been a history of curing cancer in the mouse. We have cured mice of cancer for decades, and it <laughs> simply didn't work in humans. End of quote. <laughs> and I give you one other quote from G. Timothy Johnson, MD, who was, I think, the editor for a scientific uh, section in, um, in one of the newspapers, and he said animal cancer research should be regarded as the scientific equivalent of gossip hmm. with about the same chance of turning out to be true because some gossip is true, but most of it is not. And gossip causes great anguish <laughs> for those who are affected. And in yes, this it certainly case, does. In this case, millions of desperate cancer patients worldwide. Millions of patients. And for someone like me who sees 40 to 50 cancer patients every week, I'm walking several of them to their very painful deaths every week. This is too close to home. Another kind of model that has been developed by researchers is called patient-derived xenograft. 
and these are used as avatars. So what you do is you take, uh, let's say, a tumor from a patient and you transplant it into an animal and then you are now going to test drugs on this. Okay. So the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, has developed a library of about 100 patient-derived xenograft for researchers, which they give out. Europe has gone even further. They have 1,500 of these models with 30 tumor types. Now, October 9th of 2017, which is just a few months ago, right? Nature publishes a paper which shows from Harvard, from the Broad Institute, shows that in an analysis of more than 1,000 mouse models of cancer, basically no one of these could predict patient's response to therapy. So you can study the drugs in these models, great, and see responses. In and a, then, thousand, a, thousand, a thousand studies, not one could predict uh, it in humans based yes, on the mice. Wow. Yes. And I'm now saying to you that within two, weeks of, within two weeks of this, there was another news item which caught my attention. I won't take the name of the company, but this company was granted $2 million award from the National Cancer Institute to develop and evaluate prostate cancer uh, patient-derived xenograft models. Now you tell me, Nature is publishing a paper that 1,000 of these models tested <laughs> are useless. Yeah. And NCI is giving $2 million. Wow. For development of these models to a company. Wh what is happening here? Why is the right arm doesn't know what the left arm is doing? And, it, you know, I'll keep bringing you back to the patient suffering. Right. This is not about a football coach making $43 million a year. This is about people suffering. This is about an Andrew who's 23 years old, whose mouth looks like a battlefield, who can't swallow his own saliva. Wow. It sounds like in many ways the root of the problem is is almost cultural, that it's scientists who are brought up on mouse models and you know, simply try to, you know, keep extending those mouse models because that's how they know what works. I mean, I, I remember when I was in, you know, taking biology classes in high school and college and they said, hey, why do we use those fruit flies to study genetics? It's because we understand the fruit fly so well. That's the point of a model organism. We understand it so completely that, you know, when we do novel research, it's sort of a, a blank canvas and, and uh, you know, our work will stand out because we understand the fruit fly so well. I imagine some of the same logic might apply to mice, but it sounds like when we're, you know, uh, breeding mice or inserting cancer in the mice just to just to uh, uh, study the, uh, you know, come up with a new way to study cancer in mice, it sounds like we're the the model is being extended too far, but simply because of the inertia of generation after generation of scientists. Uh, you know, using that model over and over again. Um, in response to this, you've done your own research on human tissue, correct? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, of course. I'm, I want to talk more about that. But listen, I think uh, Norbert Wiener in 1940s at MIT said one of the best things. The best model for a cat is another cat. Hmm. Preferably the same one. So the best model for humans 
are humans. Right. That's very ob- that's very intuitive. Yes. Now you're probably wondering why such obvious studies are not being done. <laughs> right. Yeah. If we want to cure cancer in humans, why aren't we why researching aren't we on humans? Them? Yes. So here's the thing. There's little incentive for researchers to change. The first reason is, of course, the precious nature of human tissue. The second reason is that grants are impossible to get unless you have animal models. I mean, if I showed something that I observed in patients and submitted, this really happened to me, submitted it for a grant, I was asked, well, well, but have you shown it in mice? Hmm. And the third problem is the human element. Working with overworked clinical oncologists like myself is, of course, much more difficult than just handling, um, you know, handling uh, mice in a lab. So, but I keep coming back to the cardinal rule of Kuhn's paradigm shift that it is now incumbent upon me to make an old paradigm irrelevant. We have to show the relevance of the new one. And we have to really be able to show that it is much better to study human tissue. So I came to this country in 1977 as a fresh medical graduate. And I started my research at Roswell Park Cancer Institute back then in 1977. And, you know, Adam, sometimes it helps to be an immigrant. I know right now it's not. It's not helping me to be an immigrant in this country. But there there are still some positive features of it. One of it was that I was a very naive person. Had I been trained in this country to receive my PhD or MD and wanted to do cancer research, I would have been trained to study mice also. But here I was, a fresh, young medical graduate with great dreams of curing cancer. And it seemed totally obvious to me that if I'm going to cure cancer, I better save my patient's tissues. So I started saving bone marrow and blood samples on my patients in 1984. Wow. And today I have more than 60,000 samples in my tissue repository, which has moved. That repository moves in a refrigerated Big Mac truck from Buffalo (laughs) to (laughs) be moved to Cincinnati, to Chicago, to Massachusetts, and now to New York. I have 15 freezers full of these samples. Wow. With uh, which are very well annotated samples in the sense that we have all the patient records, diagnosis, type of disease, survival information, everything on a one click efficiency. And so remember I told you I started by studying acute myeloid leukemia, but very quickly noticed that a third of my patients were giving some history of having a pre-leukemic kind of syndrome. So I said, wow, this is great if I can study two stages of this acute leukemia, pre-leukemia, and then try to catalog the molecular genetic developmental milestones which convert a pre-leukemic cell into a leukemic one, then I would be able to unravel and understand the steps a cell has to take to become a frankly malignant cell. And with that in mind, I started to collect these tissues. And and from patients who had MDS, which is the pre-leukemia, and followed them for years as they developed leukemia. So today I have hundreds of patients who have gone through this trajectory, this journey, 
from pre-leukemia to leukemia and how awful I feel when I go and look at my tissue repository, take out cells to study. Adam, every cell in every sample carries a story for me because mm. I have personally taken care of all these patients. I know what pain they went through to have that bone marrow extracted. I do wow. it myself. So I know it. I know what has gone through the mind of this 31-year-old or that 49-year-old or that 77-year-old. The whole story comes flashing back to me. Now, here's the thing. Mice don't get cancer. But we try to create something which lowers their blood counts and makes it and pretend that this is looking like MDS now and we should study it. So these kinds of models are not even remotely faithful to human myelodysplastic syndrome. Hmm. And the first time that 29 MDS patients were sequenced with whole exome sequencing in 2011 by the Japanese group and then another cohort of patients by a European group, they immediately found that 50% of these MDS patients showed mutations in a splicing factor gene. How exciting that as soon as human tissue was studied, after 40 years of studying MDS in <laughs> mice, as soon as human tissue was studied, they find this. Okay, why am I not talking about my own research? Because I think that would make me sound as if I think I'm the big hero and uh, <laughs> I have come to save the field. I don't feel like that at all, Adam. Please don't think for a second that I'm trying to say that all the researchers around me are doing the wrong things, studying mouse models, wasting their time, and I'm the only one. No, I feel so bad. I told you already every day I feel suicidal that why am I not <laughs> being able to improve this, uh, the outcome for my patients? And right. the, the thing is ex what exactly what you said. It's easy to change rules, but it is very difficult to change a culture. Well, I'm here talking to Dr. Azra Raza. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Hey, this is Griffin McElroy. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. And we've got a new podcast on Maximum Fun called Wonderful. Wonderful. It's an enthusiast podcast where we talk about things that we're excited about and things that you're excited about. Things like overalls. 24-hour Sudafed. The grand prize game. The fact that wombats use their butts to kill predators. The soundtrack to the movie Dick Tracy. The beach potion we call Bud Light Line. All these things and more every Wednesday. And we'll also talk about things that you're excited about. You can find us on MaximumFun.org or iTunes or wherever. I don't know. Just search Wonderful. Google it, you'll probably get there. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am here talking to Azra Raza, the professor of medicine and director of the MDS Center at Columbia Medical School. I mean, the way that you describe it to have, you know, you're not just inserting cancer in mice that wouldn't get the cancer in the first place and then trying to, you know, extrapolate from that to humans, you are looking at the tissue of actual patients who you've treated, who you even understand the life history of. I mean, that's a whole body of contextual knowledge that, uh, uh, you know, about, about that cancer that it certainly seems like that would be valuable for research. Yes, definitely it is. And 
One of the things that I have tried to do over the years is that there are outstanding researchers in America. I mean, the kind of technology, the kind of minds, uh, it is very encouraging and very exciting. So I'm always sharing my samples. And the insights we have made uh, through collaborations, whether it is with NIH scientists or scientists at the Brigham or scientists at Yale or at MD Anderson Cancer Center, everywhere we work together. We try to uh, exchange uh, technology to, uh, as well as um, actual samples to study them. And the results have been phenomenal then once we study human tissue. The thing is that we need more investment of uh, minds to study because with four or five uh, research labs studying human tissue but 95 others studying still the mouse model, the results are not going to come with alacrity. There will be that stagnation in the field still. Um, I want to stop here for a minute and also say something else about why I feel so discouraged uh, about this is because my own husband uh, was a um, cancer researcher who had uh, born and raised in Brooklyn and since he was 15 years old he had dedicated his life to curing cancer. He was the head of the cancer center at Rush University in Chicago. And can you imagine, Adam, that in a cruel twist of irony, he got the very disease he was trying to cure since he was 15 years old. And he gets cancer at a time when our daughter is three years old. Mm. Now, it's something interesting that I had been um, working with Harvey for many years, And one of the things he always told me was, do not become very close to your patients. Hmm. Because if you get your emotions involved, then you won't be able to make objective decisions about their disease. Right. Except when he got a diagnosis of cancer, I'm the one who had to tell him that you have this. You know what was his first response, Adam? As you're going to take care of me. I said, what are you talking about? You are the one who told me all my life that I mustn't get close to patients and now you expect me to make every decision for you? And he said, yes, sorry, you're the best doctor I know. You're going to decide for me. So then I had to stand on both both sides of the bed, Adam. I was a wife who saw the person I loved most die slowly over the next five years. And I was also the doctor standing on the other side, deciding what to do. Every time an MRI is done, I have to recognize that there is a fungal infection. What do I have to do? So for me, nobody needs to lecture me about both sides of the bed. And that's a completely different experience. Did it change me as a doctor? I don't think so. But it changed my perception of the world forever. Wow. Yeah, that I, I can't imagine a a more difficult professional experience or personal experience. And the failure to help poor Harvey at a personal level also. Think about it. It isn't that we had lack of uh, uh, of medical expertise. 
the best minds in the country were consulted constantly and tried their best to help but it was such a shocking realization to me that how little we had to offer him in terms of fresh treatments and that also has uh, that happened 16 years ago so it's not new but that also galvanized me into really investing more and more in trying to change the culture but i keep meeting against of course these horrible roadblocks because you basically i'm trying to talk to people about changing something you know what uh, reminds me of the wonderful saying by upton sinclair who said it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon not understanding it right and that's the issue if their whole salary comes from a grant which is supposed to be funded based on their mouse work then how are they ever going to be convinced to give it up So that's one of the first problems why we are failing spectacularly in improving treatment of cancer. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what are the what are the others? I mean, we often talk about how, you know, problems can often be uh there are often different ways to look at the sources of problems. Sometimes there are individual problems that we can change, you know, and help individually. Sometimes there are cultural problems and we talked about the cultural you know issues in in uh uh how science and how this sort of science is done but uh, often there's also systemic issues where you know the the structure of how the entire system is organized it what is what's getting in the way and i assume there must be some of that here you said that uh human tissue was precious why is it so uh, i i'm really curious about that what makes it precious and and difficult to get a hold of Well first of all let's think about say some patient has lung cancer so we remove the cancer it's a small tumor how many people can get to study it mm see uh, another problem that happened uh, is you know amgen is a very famous uh, biotech firm here in this country amgen wanted to invest money in oncology drugs and uh, before the started to follow some leads they made a decision that we are going to look at some seminal landmark papers which have been published in some of the highest profile journals like nature and science and cell new england journal of medicine and let's see what they are reporting maybe they are reporting great targets we can develop drug against so let's see what we can do they tried to reproduce what had been reported and do you know what they found adam that 47 of the 53 landmark cancer papers were not reproducible wow in fact more than 70% of researchers have tried to reproduce another scientist's experiments and more than half fail to reproduce their own experiments <laughs> so there is definitely a reproducibility crisis and of course yes. it's not because scientists are fabricating data it's because in my opinion two reasons one you use a bad system like lab mice and you'll end up with a reproducible results because even you can't produce the same results twice you have a healthy mouse in one week and a second healthy mouse in a second week and you try to create cancer in both of them will be different right 
Second problem is something called p-hacking. You know p-values? Yes. I'm sure you know a few jokes about p-values. Tell us one. (laughs) (laughs) I actually don't know any jokes. We've talked about this topic on a a previous episode of the podcast with uh, uh, Professor Brian Osek, um, but I'd love to hear how it applies specifically in cancer research as well. I don't think specifically. It's just the whole idea of using data mining to uncover patterns that could be presented as statistically significant. You don't have any hypothesis, nothing, but you do this p-hacking. So, I mean, scientists are not trying to fabricate data. They're not being dishonest. Of course not. I'm not implying that for a second. All I'm saying is that the systems being used are such that even... 50% of the time, they can't reproduce their own results. And Amgen, this is all reported in nature. I couldn't make up these statistics. They are so bad. 47 out of 53 of the best (laughs) papers have not been reproduced. You think about it. And and this is what I mean by a systemic problem, because it's not the individual uh, scientists who are setting out to, to do bad research. It's it's the uh, result of the incentives that the system gives them that you can only get a grant if you do this sort of research or the, uh, you know, the the overwhelming need to show your P variable is high enough. Uh, means that, of course, you're incentivized to uh, do whatever you can to get that high enough, uh, et cetera. It's those systemic pressures that are placed on the research that um, uh, cause these problems to arise. Yes. And, you know, um, Professor Daniel Kahneman, who got the Nobel Prize? Yes, he wrote that uh, wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yes, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, He calls something uh, the focusing illusion, Mm. which means that if our mind becomes focused on something, then the downstream effect of that focus is that we will ignore everything that goes against that Mm. and only focus on things which uh, kind of reiterate our own assumption. And so it's true that this focusing illusion can be a disaster for us. And he was asked in one of the interviews that uh, what would be the one thing you would suggest that could improve uh, the human cognition toolkit and sense of well-being. And his answer was not something that he's, uh, by the way, he got his Nobel Prize for or what he is famous for. Um, But his answer was that nothing is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the focusing illusion that you think it's so important that everything that you bring now to bear on the situation will be something that supports that illusion. And so that leads to something, uh, a lot of this p-hacking kind of business, you know. So my the point I was only, I was trying to make with you is that there are many reasons why we are failing um, as a system to improve um, the outcome of cancer research. And, and a very obvious one is this reproducibility crisis. Another is how we are doing granting, um, how we are uh, issuing grants to different centers or investigators, because in the words of an NIH person themselves, we are operating in the framework of a system that was created more than 50 years ago. 
essentially to identify 10% of grants that NIH would be rejecting. Hmm. And now it's just the converse, that only 10% grants are being funded, 90% are being rejected. But we are using the same peer review system that we were using 50 years ago. I mean, nothing has been revised. Do you think the peer review system that NIH uses to give grants itself is, is part of the problem? I'm saying that that system worked well 50 right. years ago when 90% grants were being funded. But I'm saying to you now, you think about it, Adam, 10% grants have to be funded. So that means one out of 10 grants, meaning there may be three grants which are equally good. But now the peer reviewer has to decide which one of those two or three has to be funded. Given the frailties of human nature, what will come into play next? Some emotion. Right. Right? I know someone or so-and-so is going to be on my study section deciding for my grant. Who knows? I'm not accusing anyone. I'm just saying that we need to review, revise, and really improve and refresh some of these systems. But nobody's even questioning hmm. them. That's so interesting. It also strikes me that you know, of all the diseases that are being researched uh, or have research dollars put towards them. I mean, cancer must be, I'm sorry that I don't know the figures offhand, but cancer must be uh, one of the best funded. I mean, it's it certainly uh, has, you know, the biggest campaigns for the public, right, as far as, you know, public fundraisers, etc., uh, uh, that there's so much attention and uh, money being devoted towards cancer, yet, as you say, the results of the research are so uh, meager. Yes, but I'm afraid uh, there is a little bit of disconnect here, Adam, because sadly, even though over $100 billion may be spent in taking care of cancer patients, you know how much goes for cancer how research? Much? It is no more than $4.5 billion. Oh, wow. This country spends over $300 billion on shoes. <laughs> and it spends $4.5 billion on cancer, which is going to affect one in two men and one in three women. I was, you know, I was going to say, I was going to say, Audra, everybody needs shoes. So it makes sense that we spend a lot of money on shoes. All right. And everyone needs, let's say everyone needs at least two pairs of shoes because you, sometimes you got to go to a wedding. But and so it makes sense that we spend a lot of money on shoes. But that's a good point. If if half of people are getting cancer, uh, well, then it should have at least be a quarter of the amount of money we spend on shoes. Yes. And, you know, the point is half the people may get cancer, but everybody is affected yes. one way or another by cancer. Somebody, you know, somebody in the family has it. I mean, cancer I am, is... I am stunned by the fact that, you know, I'm only 34 years old and, you know, most of my friends are in the same peer group. And, and I have, in the last two years, about half a dozen friends of mine have, have uh, contracted cancer of one form or another uh, to varying degrees of seriousness. Um, and that, and that, I risk my case. And, uh, that, yeah, that was surprising to me. I mean, it, it shouldn't have been, but, um, you know, it, it, it really is a, a, a daily fact of life. Yes, which brings me to my next objection, which is that, you know, we humans do things in fashionable cycles. At the moment, as soon as uh, human genome was sequenced, the fashion became uh, genomic research. So we became so gene-centric 
that we exclude everything else. Just uh, uh, basically uh, doing whole exome or whole genome sequencing is now ignoring um, germline mutations, gene fusions, copy number variations, all kinds of things like transcriptomics, uh, RNA sequencing, metabolomics, proteomics, basically panomics. There's so much to be studied, but we just think that we'll identify one gene mutation, it will be responsible for causing one cancer and we'll be able to cure with one drug. This, this whole approach has to be changed. We have to take the complexity of nature, the complexity of seed and soil. Right. A cancer cell existing in the presence of an abnormal microenvironment. Um, you know, th there is a doctor who's visiting with me from uh, City of Hope right now, Dr. Samir Khalid. You know what he told me in clinic yesterday? That he has uh, transplanted a woman from her brother because of cancer. But the brother's cells developed the same cancer after wow. a year. So then he transplanted her now from an unrelated donor. And within months, the donor cells became cancerous. Wow. So what does that tell us, Adam? It's, genetics is not uh, as closely associated with that. Yes. Ex and what it's exactly telling us that there is something wrong in that body, no matter what cells you put in, they become right. cancerous. So it's the microenvironment. In other words, the seed and the soil have to be studied together. You can't study things out of and context. So imagine now studying in a mouse exactly. model. I mean, I think it's bad enough to take human cells out and study them in the lab because, again, they're out of context of their environment. And then imagine now taking a mouse, killing all its immune system and putting these cells in there and studying them. This this reminds me of how just in the very last interview I did with uh, Dr. Catherine Hall, who studies the placebo effect, we talked about how complex the human body is and, and how you know, nuanced and subtle and complex and, and numerous, these effects that we're just beginning to understand are. And she was talking about, you know, how the mind interfaces with the body. Um, and we talked about how the the human body is sort of a galaxy unto itself that we're, we're, there's so much left to understand about. And that makes it so clear that to, that we should be studying that what we need to be studying is the human body then uh, that that we are limiting ourselves if we only study these phenomena in other animals. Yes. I mean, think about this, that, for example, we have a microbiome. There are bacteria and exactly. pathogens and organisms living in our yes. gut. Um, recently, a study came out that shows clearly that for colon cancer to develop, it is two pathogens that are in the gut that's supposed to live there, but somehow they become abnormally proliferative or something, so they change the gut flora. And now in that background, the only cell that can survive is a mutated one, which is a cancerous cell. So now we are saying that if we can treat with an antibiotic, kill off those things, cancer wouldn't develop. Huh. Just giving you an example yeah. that how much everything matters uh, in, in terms of the context. Another thing is, you know, flamingos, uh, we are always looking at uh, pink flamingos in backyards. Well, flamingos are not 
pink or white because their genes dictated them to be but because every flamingo is white but the ones become pink because they eat bright shrimp uh. which turns them in other words the phenotype is determined not just from the genotype but it is a combination of genes and the environment right. that determines the the phenotype so the pink flamingo is pink because of not its genes but it's an so again my my next point was that okay we have problems with mouse models we have reproducibility crisis we have to give up the gene centric approach we have to think about the seed and soil then another point is uh, adam that nothing in biology makes sense except in the context of evolution mm. so cancer cell may be one but then once it starts dividing it gives birth to daughter cells that can have the same founder mutation but will pick up different passenger mutations and will have different subtypes and subclones so cancer is not one disease it's thousands of different cancer cells waiting their turn to start proliferating no sooner do you kill one will the next one arise so in other words we have to keep abreast of this clonal competition as well and keep studying not think that just studying one dominant clone is giving all the answers about drug therapy because a minority of cells sitting in there will then wear their ugly head and come sequentially to populate Uh, and to cause relapse of cancer so i do think that that's a very important concept and then of course the study of the immune system and the final thing immune system i don't want to touch on that so much because that is the most fashionable thing talked about <laughs> right now immune therapies are going to be the answer to cancer and i hope they are i hope they are because but then i've been doing all this and studying and uh, uh, using immune therapies for for 41 years already now the techniques are far superior but right still they are very very far from being any becoming the common mode of treatment anytime mm. soon i just want to say that because i think it's unfair to raise hopes in our poor cancer patients and act as if the bullet is right magic bullet is around the yeah. corner that uh, immune therapy has reached such a dramatic state of uh, producing complete remissions and cures that you just have to live for a few more months and we'll have the answer for you know that is unfair it's got a long way to go but it is looking very exciting the last thing i want to say is that how broken our system is about clinical trial design and you know what happens in a clinical trial design adam i'll just summarize it for you in Please. a few words the government or nih will fund basic research in academic institutions right and scientists who are working in these academic institutions will identify a target through their wonderful work they'll say okay this is the gene that needs to be attacked in cancer cells then what is the drug that can help that has to be tested in mice so then they have to do the mouse studies but now when they have identified the target and a drug the next step has to be done by industry why because it involves too much money it will cost 2.6 billion dollars now to get that drug from bench to bedside 
and that the NIH can't give because their whole budget is four and a half billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So now industry takes over drug development, and their interest is, of course, to get the drug approved. They couldn't care less about how is what is the mechanism of action once this drug is taken from the bench and actually instead of being given to mice, it is being given to humans. What is the is it really working by attacking the target that was identified in the lab or not? They don't care as long as their uh, primary endpoint is met, and they are right. Also, I'm again. I don't want to uh, sound like I'm criticizing industry. I am saying that that's what they have to do. So yeah, then they're following their are, incentive as they should. They're following, but you see, where do they have to do trials? Back in the academic institution. So I have to do the clinical trials, which are now funded by industry, but which are not going to ask the questions I want to ask. <laughs> they're not going to. Because the last thing is that's why eighty-five percent clinical trials fail in early phase. 10% fail in late phases. So that means 95% are failing today. Hmm. And I told you the 5% that make it to the FDA approval are not improving survival. But patients are suffering from all the side effects. Yeah. So what is my answer to all this? I think effective drugs already exist, but they are not being matched properly to the right patients. So, for example, let's say I have a patient with MDS, the disease I treat, and I have three FDA-approved drugs for it. There is, for 90% of the patients, I don't know which drug to give first, which is sad. Why am I not able to match right drug to the right patient? So I will go by trial and error. I'll try the oral one first. If it doesn't work, I'll try the subcutaneous one. Doesn't work, I'll try the intravenous one. I mean, that just shouldn't be. We should be investing a lot of time, resources, but not just money and resources, financial resources. I'm talking about intellectual resources. Mm. Scientists have to pay attention to, we are giving this drug to patients. We need to know what it's doing to them. We should demand that. If an industry is bringing a trial, these must be the correlative tests we have to do. I am saying that if a target is identified and a drug is found to be potentially useful in attacking the target, then just forget about mouse studies. Bring the drug directly to humans and do a phase zero trial. Now, nobody even knows about phase zero trial, even though FDA approved this in 2008. Hmm. What is a phase is zero it? trial? It's a trial in which a drug is given at 500th the dose that it would be given hmm. at to, uh, to, uh, to have an effect. And, and that is as safe as testing it in mouse. Why does it give us more confidence to test a drug in mouse and then bring to humans and feel, oh, I did it in mouse? No, it has nothing to do with how you are going to see what side effects you're going to see in humans that you saw in mice. You can't extrapolate from one to the other. So if we can be so delusional about mouse studies, I think it's much better to do a phase zero trial, which is very, very low dose. And if it is tolerated, then proceed to a phase one trial and then save every sample to study by panomics, not just gene-centric approach, by all the things Mm. I said, and then compare responders to non-responders. 
and you know it's like anna karenina's uh, <laughs> opening lines um <laughs> i love i love you have a quotation Happy. you have a quotation for every example and it makes these so it makes it makes them so vivid honestly i do really love it Yes, you know, happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are unhappy each in their own ways. Or happy marriages are all alike. <laughs> you can say anything, but the the fact is that when somebody doesn't respond to a drug, Adam, it could be because they didn't take the drug, or they took it at the wrong dose or wrong time, or they took it and it actually didn't work. So there are many reasons for a drug to fail. But if you give this drug to 50 patients and 20 of them respond there must be something in common in the responders yeah. and that's what we need to identify hmm. so that we can then enrich the next phase of the trial to only give it to those patients and then keep expanding that next phase to trial until some biomarkers or surrogate markers of response can be identified then we proceed to the phase 3 trial with the biomarker enriching for patients predicted to respond and then you have a chance to compare it to placebo and again collect every patient sample who responded who didn't respond with after all these enrichments study them by panomics try to fully yeah. understand the characteristics of patients who are responding this is how you conduct serious survival trials whose end point is not a six week survival advantage for god's sake <laughs> that's uh thank you so much for for uh walking us through that um i i want to ask you uh before we go cuz we're we are running out of time but i want to make sure uh, i touch on this uh you've written about your experience as uh an immigrant uh from pakistan correct yes um coming to uh the united states to uh uh conduct this sort of research and and what that means to you i just wondered if you could share a little bit of, a little bit of that with us now yes i am an immigrant to this country a very happy immigrant and i must say that i have been welcomed in the country um with such warmth and generosity i feel very fortunate that i am an american um but the immigrant experience that we have is that this country really supports meritocracy only in america could we come here and compete openly for very precious grant funding or very precious jobs or positions quite openly with people who have been born raised gone through the mills have the right um uh have the right backgrounds went to the ivy league institutions and yet i am able to compete on the basis of merit with them how yeah. beautiful is that there are very few i don't know any other country where we could have gone and had this kind of success and to my parents it was a big disappointment because we came, we come from a colonized country and their dream was that we should all go to britain and none of us went there we came <laughs> to the us because only the us has number one the resources to invest and number two it has the generosity of spirit to welcome immigrants and to to treat them equally 
Yes. I feel very fortunate to be here and so do my siblings and I think that that tradition cannot be ever diminished in this country no matter what the political situation the immigration tradition that this country has will continue and the the brains that come here from all over the world and I see around me all the time and cheer them on fantastic and this is why i think that the hope of uh, for bringing any kind of uh, uh, of relief to cancer patients will come through a cultural revolution that the younger uh, newer researchers have to bring on no one is going to voluntarily give up what they are doing unless we improve the paradigm and make the old ones uh, go away and the right. burden in my opinion remains on translational researchers to demonstrate clinical success improved therapies less pain for our patients because time and again i will keep reminding everyone how many andrews is it going to take mm. yeah well thank you so much for uh coming on the show dr raza and uh, uh sharing all this with us it, it, it it's the more I talk to folks like yourself, it, it uh, the more the word and it's such it's a word that is used, you know, so fuzzily uh, and and with so little meaning so much of the time. But I keep coming back to the word holistic as a way to uh, uh, approach these diseases because you're not talking about not just studying, you know, cancer, isolating these little mouse cells, but looking at the whole person, at the environment, at at the entirety of the human body, and in order to actually with a mindfulness of the effect that you want, not just trying trying to destroy certain cells, but to uh, think about the effect on the patient and to really take all of those things into account and be mindful of them in, in the same moment in a holistic way is the only word that comes to mind. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's remarkable to, to, to hear your perspective. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Adam. And I can't end without poetry. So I'm going to give you a last uh, few lines in poetry. I would be angry if you didn't. Please share the poetry with us. And I quote Alfred Lord Tennyson. And though we are not now that force which in olden days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find and not to yield. Thank you so much, Adam. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Raza. I'm, I'm not going to say anything else. I just want to leave the audience with that. Thank you so much. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Azra Raza once again for coming on the show. And that is it for this week's Adam Ruins Everything, uh, the podcast. We will be back in just two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about the podcast or subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Again, new episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, an all-animated miniseries, Adam Ruins Everything presents Reanimated History, comes back to True TV. March 20th, Tuesday, 10 p.m. And you can find full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the True TV app. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Conover and you can watch me play video games at TwitchTV.com slash Adam Conover if that's the kind of thing you like to do. Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.